right, we're in the imprecatory psalms study. Imprecatory psalms, Psalm 139. We were in Psalm 137 last week. Psalm 139 is a little uh, longer. We probably won't get to the whole thing tonight. It is, uh, there are portions of this that are probably very familiar to you. And looking at this psalm, this is attributed to David. It says a psalm of David, and it is very much something that seems to flow from David. Interestingly enough, in some of the Jewish traditions, they, uh, the, the rabbinical teachings and whatnot, they say the first person to pen these words was actually Adam. And then Adam uh, wrote it. Now, I would not go that far as to say that, other than the Lord is the one that breathed out his word. But you can understand as we go down through this, talks about this omniscient God who is a creative God who, who breathed life and took life and brought it together. And it would make sense when the, the Jews read this psalm in their order of readings, they read it in the uh, celebration of creation. And they read it you know, as far as a psalm that reflects back at that moment of when man was created and when all things were created and uh, that God is the one that holds all that together. And so that's just an interesting take. I say that just because, um, again, if you look at this, it goes much further than David or really, uh, and we found that in these Psalms as well, that really it speaks to us of the character of God and what he's like. And we've looked at that as well as that imprecatory part, which is actually at the end of this Psalm when it talks about having victory over the enemies. And uh, that's like verses 19 to 24. But we'll look at that uh, probably next week. We'll get to that uh, in our study. If you look at this uh, chapter, uh, Psalm 139, it gives us this sort of breakdown. This outlines from Warren Wiersbe again. And it basically, we're going to look at the first two uh, points tonight. I don't think we'll get much further than that. And we find here that God knows us intimately. In other words, we cannot deceive him, all right? And, and as David writes this psalm, he, he certainly was under, understood that from a perspective in his own life where he tried to hide his sin, and yet God exposed it. Even though he thought he had covered all his bases with man, God saw it all. And David talks about having been searched out by God. And then God is with us constantly, and in other words, we cannot escape him. There's no place that you can go and get away from God. I know man would like to. Some people have tried to. They've tried to remove him and, and get rid of any knowledge of God. <clears throat> but yet, he's still there. And you can't do that. And then, God made us wonderfully. And that uh, is the, the fact that we cannot ignore him. He is a creative God who brings life together. And we cannot ignore him on that. Uh, God made us wonderfully. And then fourthly, God judges righteously. And that's what we'll look at uh, in the imprecatory part eventually. In other words, we cannot dispute him. We cannot uh, stand against him when he judges because he always judges right. So you best be on his side for sure on that. Well, we're going to look at this first point. God knows us intimately. And we're going to read down through verses 1 to 6. It says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. <clears throat> you comprehend my path and my lying down. 
and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before, and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Well, as we said, that you have here the fact that God knows us intimately. He actually knows us better than we know ourselves. And when we get to that point of understanding uh, the nature of who God is, his omniscience, right? That God is one that understands us and he's he should because he's the one who created us right he's the one that made us he's the one that wired us and he knows everything about us in that way and by the way he himself has put on flesh and walked around in a human body he knows what that's like and of course in the person of Jesus Christ in the incarnation <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> there a little itch in my throat tonight here <clears throat> he begins with this he says oh lord you have searched me and known me you have searched me and known me the word to search means to explore it was actually used by the jews in a description of what they would do to go into a mine and uh, dig up ore and you know go down in there and you dig for that precious ore whatever it is but to search out in the Latin, uh, in the Latin translation of the Bible, they actually use the word, I believe, investigate. And that's where we get as well. When you want to search something out, you do an investigation, a very careful, detailed look. And that's what he says here, that the Lord uh, is to search us. And it's interesting because the literal phrase means to examine with pain and care. So in other words, it isn't just a casual investigation or a casual search, but it's getting right down to where, you know, it, it actually would hurt you to search something out. And that's what it really says about God. He has searched us at great lengths and at great pain. And I think of that because in the whole doctrine of the Incarnation, not only does God, God has always known everything, right? He's omniscient. But when he inhabited flesh, he put on flesh, and the Bible says he dwelt among us, um, he also came to the point where he understood by experience, not just by knowledge, but by experience, what a human is like, because he's fully God and fully man. That's the son. Well, we see that. And there are a number of uh, phrases <clears throat> that you would see in this uh, this chapter but by the way it, it sort of means like this or digging into a deep mine or uh, an investigation of a legal case that's the, the, the way that word is used in Hebrew and I want to go back to um, uh, yeah Genesis chapter 3 because you find that right from the very beginning in the book of Genesis the fact that well Genesis begins with the creation story and we know God is all-powerful and he can create things out of nothing but you get to Genesis chapter 3, and not only do we find that he knows all, or he, he is powerful to do everything, in other words, omnipotent, but he's also omniscient. He knew exactly what had taken place when Adam and Eve sinned. And well, I think we were in this text this morning, or part of it, but I want to go back to it. But it says this in Genesis 3.8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I don't know what that would sound like, but they heard the Lord, all right? And he's moving in the garden. 
And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And as you've heard many times before, that question went out not because God didn't know where they were. Actually, the next verses show that he knew exactly where they were and what they had done. But Adam thought he was hiding from God. And you know, in our sin, we have tried to do that for every generation from Adam on. Tried to hide from God and hide our sin from God. Well, we know that that wasn't the case and it couldn't be done because the Lord knew that they had sinned and they had discovered that they were now ashamed to be in the presence of God. They realized they were naked. And God asked them, who told you you were naked? Well, they knew it. God knew it. He already knew all those things. Um, that doesn't take very long. And all of a sudden you see Adam and Eve tried to hide from God. But the next generation tried to hide from God. You come to Cain and Abel in that story in Genesis chapter 4. And you see again the fact that you can't hide anything from God. Now Adam knew his, uh, Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord, a works offering. All right. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. There's an offering of a sacrifice, right? A substitutionary sacrifice. You see a picture of the gospel right there and a picture of a false gospel. The, the, the gift that was brought before the Lord, which was the works of the ground, the works of, of, of Cain's hand, it was not accepted. And neither is your, are your works accepted before God. My works are not acceptable before God. We need something else that can take our place. And you have the picture right here, very first, uh, not quite the first instance, because we have when Adam and Eve sinned, God covered them with skins. And, and you often wonder, what skins did he use? And I, I think, I don't have a Bible verse that says this explicitly, but the picture from there on out is a sheep, right? A lamb. And very possibly he covered them with a lamb's skin. Maybe that's in keeping with the type. But anyways, all that's going on. But let, look what it goes on to say. It says this. But he did not respect Cain in his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. Cain's mad at the Lord because the works that he had done were not acceptable. Um, and by the way, I, I think there will be a reckoning day when people will stand before God, and uh, they, they really won't have an opportunity to be angry with God because they'll know at that point that everything they did to try to attain favor with God fell short. Because they did not trust the one sacrifice that could save them from sin, which is the Lord Jesus. Look what it goes on to say. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? See, the Lord looked right into Cain, saw who he was. If you do well, you will not be accepted. And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And it sounds just like what he said to his parents, right? Where are you, Adam, right? He saw what had taken place in that field. 
And here is sin number two. You have a murder that takes place, and then, well, actually probably three, because there's anger, a murder, and then a lie. He said, I do not know, am I my brother's keeper? Doesn't do very good to lie to God, does it? He sees the heart. He knows all things. How do I know that? Because the next verse says it. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And I can imagine the, the, the light bulb moment, the, the really the spotlight moment, where here Cain has killed his brother, he's buried the body, and he thinks he's the only one that knows what's going on. I mean, the only other one is dead. He can't say anything. And then God says, where's your brother? His blood is crying from the ground. Sometimes there's a reckoning when people realize that, uh, you know, sin lies at the door. And it is open for all to see, really. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And he goes on to tell Cain that he will be cursed in that. And yet God would protect him also and make him a nation. We see that. We see the Lord God, and it's interesting, that's the phrase that is used in the book of Genesis in reference to the all-knowing God, is also seen in the very fact that Christ had those same attributes. One of the first accounts of that is from John's Gospel, chapter 1, when he's calling his disciples, remember? And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Interesting, because he had not met Nathanael, all right? And he had not, he was, Nathanael's coming to Jesus. Jesus sees right through him and sees his heart and makes that statement. I don't think that's an understatement or an overstatement on those things. It's a statement. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than this, or than these. And again, a picture there of what Jesus did in just the calling of Nathanael. For Nathanael, it was an eye-opener. This one who is standing before me has seen me before I even was physically present. How could he do that unless he's God? And when he says that you are the Son of God, he is ascribing deity to Jesus. Very important. And early on in Jesus' public ministry, Nathanael got it right. He understood who Jesus was. I like that. Well, you, you see that uh, in those things. And again, like I said, you can read 2 Samuel 11, uh, chapter 11 to chapter 12 there, and you find out where he tried to cover his sin, and yet God uh, opened it up, and many of David's psalms of repentance are, arise out of that time in that. Uh, verse 2, <clears throat> he says, You know my sitting down and my rising up, in other words, he knows us right from the morning we, from the time in the morning we get up and when we lie down, he knows exactly where we make our bed. And then he says, you understand my thought afar off. 
I like that because he sees Nathaniel coming and he says, there, truly an Israelite where there is no guile, right? In other words, he's, he's, he saw a man that was an honest man. And he says he understands our thoughts afar off. The word to understand in the Hebrew means to understand or to see or to pay close attention to. And that's exactly how God is. He pays close attention to us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. I think of Matthew chapter 9, and we read of this, and this is again Jesus knowing people better than they knew themselves. It says, So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now, it's, Jesus sees them, and it's interesting, this paralytic did not, as far as we know, there's no dialogue. He didn't say anything. He comes, and by his actions, he displays he's trusting God. And by the way, what saves you, right? What is necessary for a decision of salvation? It is a trust element. It isn't necessarily only saying a prayer or you know, coming forward in a church service or something like that, but it's an aspect of trust which goes on at the heart level. And here, Jesus sees this paralytic man. He cannot, by the way, walk forward in a church meeting or a synagogue. He cannot go and do anything. He has to be brought to this place. He's lying in his bed, and Jesus sees the man's faith in action. He doesn't just see it, but he knows it. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Wow, I love that. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, okay, they did not, and that doesn't mean they were just mumbling between each other. <clears throat> they said it within them. Probably a lot of them. Probably all of them sitting there and saying, this man blasphemes. You know, I've, uh, sometimes I know what people are thinking in, you know, like as a group. I look out and I see you guys and I'll say something and I can tell whether that connects or it doesn't connect sometimes. And I can, if I could look into your mind at that moment, if I wanted to, I don't know, but it, it, I, I would know that you're all thinking about the same thing. Well, the scribes were actually, Jesus knew exactly what they were thinking. He knew this. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Can you imagine? You're a scribe there, you're sitting there, and you're going, this man speaks blasphemy, right? And Jesus looks at him and says, why do you think evil in your heart? Could have heard a pin drop probably at that point. Because this one who stood before them knew their hearts. That's the kind of God that he is. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now look what it says. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. As Jesus passed on from there, uh, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. He was a, And it said... To him, And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The context of that message that Christ gives to the Pharisees is one, first of all, it starts off with him knowing the thoughts of the scribes. And then he he hears exactly what they're saying as well. Um, And I would dare say they said it probably in a way that normally you would not hear that. Yet Jesus heard it. And it just reminds us that he knows all. And he knew exactly what to say to them as well. More could be said about that. But again, I'm just making the point that we have in the book of Genesis and throughout the Old Testament and the, the Psalms where the Lord is in one, Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts afar off. And yet we come to the New Testament and we know Jesus knows these same things and does these same things. He's God. Psalm 139.3 You comprehend my path my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. The word for comprehend, it literally means winnowing. Uh, When you winnow grain, it's when you take grain and you separate the chaff from the grain, and the chaff, you know, to do that, you're separating out the good part. And really what he says in the use of that word, that you comprehend my path, in other words, he knows every aspect of the real us. And he is able to separate all the chaff out of things. Sometimes uh, for us, we don't do it very, I, I don't do it very well. Um, I'll get with somebody and I'll, I'll think I know them. Or I'll think I know what makes them kind of tick or something like that. We say that. But honestly, they might not even know that, right? I mean, I've been married 28, almost 29 years. And I'm still trying to figure out my wife. I don't know. Now, I don't know about you guys, but women are fearfully and wonderfully made. And I don't think there is a man except Christ that really knows what makes a woman tick, right? And I say that kindly to my dear wife. She's saying, don't go any further than that, Karen. And I'll tell you what, I go out there and I cut the branch off. I'm on this side of it and I cut it here and there we go. But, but the, the reality is with all of us. We, we think, oh, I might know what that person's like. But no, Jesus is the only one. Christ, the Lord God, is the only one that really knows us at a heart level. And he's able to winnow, separate out the chaff. And he's able to do that. The word to measure up goes with that. He knows what the real you is. Whether you fall short or whether you don't. I like that because he, he's able to do that. By the way... The Bible declares that that's the way God is. I love the context of Hebrews chapter 4. We have here the word of God and we have the son of God. And those two things right there, along with really the spirit of God, uh, give us this idea of the knowledge of what's really in the heart. The Bible says this, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit. Can winnow those two. Somebody says, uh, you know, I know the Bible sometimes interchangeably uses the word spirit and soul, but I do believe that we are a three part being. There is the physical and the immaterial, and the immaterial is made up of a soul and a spirit. The soul being the seat of conscience, 
and, and it would be what we would do and look in a mirror and say, that is me, all right? We understand the personality, that inner part of us, part of our soul, what we are. And the spirit is that side of us that is still the real us, but it desires to worship. And it will either worship when we're in our sin, it will worship away from God or worship toward God, right? If we are his. And he's able to, the Bible is able to actually discern those two things. And the joints and the marrow. And is a discerner in the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, there's two, you see these, these kind of couplets of images as he says the soul and the spirit well first of all a two-edged sword right a soul and a spirit joints and marrow discerner of thoughts and intents you know he's able he's able to figure out our motives not just our thoughts that's how detailed he is and there is no creature hidden from his sight but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him whom we must give account Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, and it names him, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So that's that human aspect. You have, you have the divine aspect, the 100% God side of Jesus, and the 100% man side meeting together. That's the hypostatic union in theological terms. And you have here a high priest, one who's able to intercede on our behalf because he's been a man. And only a man could intercede for another man and another, you know, another person. And yet, only God could go before a holy God. And you see that he is that. And he goes on to say this, he was tempted like we are. He knows what it's like to feel this world around us. The pains and all the, the hurts and the disappointments and the, the sin that affects us, not the sin from within. He didn't have sin from within, but he felt a world of sin. And he certainly felt it when he went to the cross and all the sins of the world were placed on him. And I can only imagine what it would feel like to have every evil act that's ever been committed, whether it was in the mind or actually played out, placed on him. And only God could survive such a, such a load. It killed him, but he rose again. Then he says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I'll tell you, my friends, we need that. That's the only kind of grace that is available to help us, really. It's his grace. I'm thankful for that. Then he goes on to say, For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. And here, the word on the tongue, it, it carries the imagery of a, a word that is about to be spoken. And he says, The words that you are about to speak, he even knows. <sighs> I sometimes have to hold my tongue. You've, maybe you do too. And God even knows those kind of things because they, they're there. He's like that. But then he says, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. The word hedged, uh, it, it means to be closed in. I think the King James says beset, and that is a picture of a defensive posture. And he says, God, you are my hedge that protects me. Sometimes he protects us from ourselves. And I'm glad for that. But he protects us from without also. 
And he says, and laid your hand upon me. An imagery there of the Lord, that's an anthropomorphic expression, as they say, uh, that here God has laid his hand. Now, mind you, uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, when he put on flesh, he indeed had flesh and he could lay his hand on somebody. But here, David, as he's writing this, he's saying, Lord, you laid your hand on me. And again, a figure of speech, sort of, but in reality, that's what God has done. And then he goes on, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And, and what he's saying is that you, you become quickly overwhelmed by, like when you really dwell on this and understand this, it, it's overwhelming. I mean, to think about all the things that God knows and there's, that he knows everything all at once. If I sat here tonight and I started with you know, the back of the room and I said, hey, let's, let's do a quick little interview. All right, We could be here all night, me asking questions for that one person. By the time I get to the next person, I probably forgot half the stuff, right? But God does it all at once, all the time. He knows everything. That's, I don't want to go there. My, blind, my mind is already half blown. Probably more than that. But that's the way God is, right? Well, God is with us constantly. Not only does he know us intimately, but he's with us constantly. In other words, we cannot escape him. And this is the omnipresence of God. So we go from the omniscience to the omnipresence. Right? He says, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And these are rhetorical questions, and really the answer is that nowhere. You, if you were able to travel at the speed of light right now, and you could, you know head off what four and a half years it takes light to travel to the next um nearest star right and uh, if you could just instantly go there guess what god's still there all right even instantly he's everywhere in this universe he spans time he's outside of time and if you could be outside of time guess what god would still be there where can i go from your spirit and where can i flee from your presence if i ascend into heaven you are there if i make my bed in hell the the word is sheol and it means the abode of the dead if you go down to the deepest darkest part of the grave if you go into hell itself god is still there you are there if i take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Think of that in the days when, you know, man could not just get in an airplane and fly, right? And even in an airplane, you can't really fly very far or very high. You know, we're limited to the troposphere, the part of the air, you know, with an airplane. And now with, you know, spaceships, they've gone further and we've sent uh, they want to send people to Mars eventually and all that. Uh, can I just let you know a little thing? It doesn't matter how far man goes into the heavens, into the sky, he, God's still there. He's going to be there. And dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. We now know that there are places in the sea that are miles deep. And if you go to the bottom of the sea where there's not any, even any light there, because it doesn't make it that far down. You know what? God's still there. And even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. Who is at the right hand of God, by the way? 
the Lord Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father. And his right hand holds us for eternity. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. And I like that verse because in the darkness of life, wherever it is, and sometimes it's physically dark, sometimes it's spiritually dark, but God is there and he provides light in the darkness. Most of us are scared of the dark in some measure, aren't we? But not God. He dispels the darkness. Is that what John's gospel says? The light shined in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Why? Because he is the light, right? Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Oh, wow. Oh, Lord, thank you that he doesn't, you know what? Night and day doesn't matter to him. He's apart from that even. And again, you can try to run away from God, but you'll still find him there. I think about the prophet Jonah. He tried to run from God. You have him, remember God telling him, go to Nineveh, preach against them. And he goes the opposite way from Nineveh. And he goes down to Joppa. He goes down into a ship. And then down into the water. And then down into the belly of a whale. And all that journey down, God's still there. And when he gets to the very bottom of things, God's still there. Jonah knew that. And when he got to Nineveh, finally, after he repented and went, found out that God was there too. And God was at a work in the Ninevites' hearts. Oh, I'm thankful for that. God is like that. We need God's presence with us if we want to enjoy his love and fulfill his purposes. I love Isaiah 43, verse 1. It says, But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Oh, I love that. Isn't that great? When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia, and Seba in your place. Since you were precious in my sight, you have been honored, and I have loved you. Therefore, I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not keep them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. Again, the all-knowing, all-powerful God who's all-present, and he's the one that is with, in this case specifically, Israel. But really, all the redeemed. All right? And I'm thankful for that. He's with us even in those times, I often think of that verse where he said in this uh, section we just read, like he says, when you pat, you'll pass through the fire, right? And there, uh, if you're one of his, in this life, there, you know, we sometimes face, people face death. They, they will, all of us will face death. 
uh, barring the rapture, that would be great. If the rapture was to take place before my death, I'd love that, you know. But I recognize also that um, death is coming, all right? We're ready for that. But the Lord has already been there. He died. He knows what it's like. And for the believer, for the Christian, you never die alone. Jesus is with you. And he walks through that, even with you in that. And I'm glad for that. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Wow, such a great psalm. And then, you know, the Lord, I I keep comparing this because in Psalm 139, it's the Lord, Yahweh, specifically, capital L-O-R-D in your Bible, who promises these things. But yet you come to the New Testament and you see Jesus also in the same position as Yahweh. All right. For instance, the Great Commission. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And look at this part. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Really, the expression, the end of the age, it means to eternity. And aren't you glad for that? That he's with you? He's that kind of God. He's that kind of Savior. He's that kind of Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are great, grateful tonight. Grateful for your word. Grateful for this psalm. Lord, thank you that you hedge us about. And God, you, you are the one who knows us better than we know ourselves. You know our worries, you know our hurts, you know our, our concerns. You know the thoughts that we have before we even really think those things. You're so powerful, oh Lord. Thank you that you came and dwelt among us and you understand us. Thank you for being our Savior. Taking all the bad things, all the sin, all the evil... And willingly taking that from us and putting it on yourself. What a great salvation. And Lord, I pray many in our world today would trust you and would come to that saving faith and know this God who is so powerful and so all-knowing and who wants to be near us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.